First Timothy chapter 3, we pick up our reading there at the first verse. Hear once again the word of our God. This is a true saying. If a man desire the office of a bishop, he desireth a good thing. A bishop then must be blameless, a husband of one wife, vigilant, sober, of good behavior, given to hospitality, apt to teach, not given to wine, no striker, not greedy and filthy lucre, but patient, not a brawler, not covetous, one that ruleth well his own house, having his children in subjection with all gravity. For if a man know not how to rule his own house, how shall he take care of the church of God? Not a novice, lest being lifted up with pride he fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must have a good report of them which are without, lest he fall into the reproach and the snare of the devil. Amen. Thus far the reading of God's word, and may he bless it to us this evening. We are walking, as we come to 1 Timothy, into a very particular scene, a strange scene in many ways. We come to a scene of paradox. It's at once a picture of perfect tranquility, peace. And at the very self-same time, it is nothing less than the stage of blood and of gore. As far as the world was concerned, what was facing the churches in Ephesus was minor. It, it was something that required very little attention. In the grand scheme of things, in the eyes of the world, things were okay. But you remember in Acts 20 how the Apostle anticipates the difficulties these churches would face. The churches, the Ephesian churches, would experience that moment when ravening wolves would come in among them. And note, friend, how the Apostle sees the experience of believers there. These ravening wolves would come in among them, not sparing the flock. It's a picture, it's a graphic picture of blood and of gore. When the Apostle writes in 1 Timothy, he is writing, not expecting these things to come. He's writing as one who's already heard that these wolves have arisen. And when he looks at the Ephesian difficulties, as he looks at the crisis, he sees devastation. He sees, as you come to the end of the first chapter, those who have made shipwreck of the faith. No, the world may see, may see in this moment nothing of great moment. They may not make a casualty count. But as the Apostle looks at these things, the difficulties faced by Christians here, he sees the stakes are incredibly high. The casualty numbers, incredibly high. And so, friend, he writes to Timothy. He writes to Timothy, and really, he writes to Timothy, writing then to the entirety of the Ephesian churches, calling for reform. What you have in 1 Timothy is a clarion cry to deal with this problem. He writes to Timothy, exhorts the church through Timothy to deal with the issue. And friend, as you look through this epistle, you see here that the man 
writing under inspiration of God's Spirit, our Apostle, is concerned for the church. He is quite aware that what they are facing are real difficulties. But how is Reformation to come about? Does he urge for a whole change of the church? Does he say all of your structures and all of your, all of your programs and so forth, these things that were instituted by Christ, we need to remove them. Those were the problem. Well, no, friend, what we find here is that the program of reform for the apostle, even as we read in our text, is not to remove the offices that Christ has established in the church, but to reform them. And particularly to be sure that those men who are there are men whom Christ would have there. As we look at this text, friend, of course, we are seeing here the apostle urging the churches in Ephesus to hold fast to what has been received. And so in the first chapter, the verses 3 to 20, the apostle urges them to hold on to the true gospel. In the second chapter, the first seven verses, he urges them to have right expectations about the gospel. This is a gospel that is extended both to Jew and to Gentile. And then as you come to the end of chapter 2, he urges the Ephesians to participate in right practice. From the 8th verse and on, he limits for us what the Church of Christ ought to be doing in Ephesus. And that brings us to our text, this program of reform that the Spirit of God has given to the churches. And the first thing that we encounter in our text, after the Apostle leaves particular practices that are to be observed in the assemblies of God's people, he comes to those who would hold office. And note what he says in the first verse. This is a true saying, if a man desire the office of a bishop, he desireth a good work. Well, immediately we have to ask the question, of course, well, what is a bishop? What is a bishop in the New Testament sense? The word in the Greek is the word episkopos. I only give that to you because that, of course, is where we get the word episcopalian. And as we think about episcopalianism, we think about a hierarchy of church officers. But as you look at the word in the New Testament, it simply means overseer. In fact, you might even have a note in your margin there. It is someone who has oversight in the church of God. And so, as you come to Acts 20, there the apostle is calling together the elders. That word there is presbyteros. That's from the word, by the way, from which we get presbyter and presbyterian. And then you'll find, as you read through Acts 20, that these ones who are gathered around Paul are called sometimes episcopos, sometimes presbyteros. He calls the same group of people by both names. And so he says, The elders which are among you I exhort, who am also an elder. I'm speaking now about Peter. He says here that he's speaking to elders. That's behind that word. The English is the word presbyteros. But then in verse 2, just like it is in Acts 20, he uses the other term. He says here, feed the flock of God which is among you, taking the oversight thereof. That is, episcopus. He is calling them to be overseers, even though they are also presbyters. Titus 1.5, another example. For this cause, says the apostle, left I thee in Crete, that thou shouldest set in order the things that are wanting, and ordain elders in every city as I have ordained thee, as I have appointed to thee. The word elder there is the word presbyteros. But then you come to the fifth verse. A bishop, episcopus, must be blameless as the steward of God. 
What you see here is the New Testament use of presbyteros and episcopos are interchangeable. They apply to anyone who takes oversight in the house of God. Here speaking of the church, not the building of course, but the people of God. And so whenever the apostle says in 1 Timothy 5.17, let the elders that rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially they who labor in the word of doctrine. When he's speaking about both offices, both offices of elders, teaching and ruling, he applies to them freely the, the term presbyteros, which may also be freely then applied. Uh, may all then be freely applied to them also the term episcopos, bishop. The idea here is, is that presbyteros and episcopos both are maybe applied to any who have oversight in the church, either teaching or ruling. And so, friends, the word episkopos has no sense in the New Testament of some kind of hierarchy, where you have one kind of church officer over another, over another, and so forth. That simply is alien to the New Testament writers. And so what the apostle is writing here in 1 Timothy 3.1 is he's urging them to think about those who take oversight in the church. He's urging those who are called elders elsewhere in the New Testament, he's urging them to be seen in a particular light. And so what you have here, friend, as you look at this text, is the Apostle, first of all, in the first verse, gives us a very basic general description of the office itself, and then follows with qualifications. That's verses 2 to 7. And in that swath of text, you have 11 qualifications enumerated for us. Now, the reality is, friend, as you look at verses 2 to 7, you'll see that these qualifications are organized around one very basic idea. As you look at the second verse, he says here, a bishop, that is an overseer, then must be blameless. That word in the original is irreproachable, or above reproach. And then come down to the seventh verse. As he concludes, as he concludes the list of qualifications, he writes this, Moreover, he must have a good report of them that are without, lest he fall into the reproach and the snare of the devil. This list of qualifications is really bookended by this idea of being above or out with the reach of reproach. And everything then within this list, everything within this inclusion, we're supposed to see really falls into this category. The bishop, he who would be overseer in the church of God, must be above, out with, the reach of reproach. And friend, as we look at this text, we also need to recognize, of course, that in the first, really, three verses, we have the apostle giving us the general idea, these general commands that are requisite for those who would hold office. He enumerates for us the majority of these qualifications in short order. But then as you come to verses 4 through 7, you find that he gives us these qualifications in specific contexts. First of all in the home, then in relation to his experience, and lastly in his relation to the world. What you have here, friend, as we said at the very onset, is the Spirit of God coming to the church and present, presenting for them a program of reform. This is a church, or a series of churches that are in crisis. And here is Christ, the ascended Christ as Zion's only king, urging them to reform. And this is the pattern that he would have them adopt. You see, friend, it's important for us because so often we're saying or hear conversations that begin with the words, the problem with the church today is, 
And everyone becomes a kind of armchair reformer. Well, you see, the scripture gives us the pattern. What is one of the ways in which the church would be reformed? By restoring the right order to the church as Christ has established it. Then you see also here that there are a list of qualifications. But, friend, it's important for me to tell you this at the onset. This is a very peculiar list. We shouldn't read this as a job description, for instance. We don't have in this list the particular details of what is part and partial of the duty of the elder. We don't have, as it were, again, a job description. What we have instead are general obligations. And by the way, general obligations that fall on every Christian man. I wonder if that strikes you. Friend, he's talking here about those who have oversight in the church. But look at this list. And maybe it doesn't strike you as, as you look at it. Allow me to put it to you this way. Friend, what if we do have a man in the church who is not a one-woman man? Who is not sober-minded? Who's not given to hospitality? Who's a drunkard? Who's a brawler? Who's covetous? Who doesn't rule his house well? Well, friend, of course, if we find such a man, it's the session's obligation to approach him. Because his obligation, according to his profession of faith, is to be such a man. These are qualifications, and this is a striking piece that we'll come back to in a moment's time, that fall upon every man in the church. But the point of this text, then, is to show here that those who would hold office must exemplify that kind of Christian piety that falls obligatory upon all who name the name of Christ. The entailment is that men in office must be evidently godly men in every sphere of life. And that really is our theme for this evening. Elders must exemplify Christian piety. And I want us to see that under three headings briefly. I want us to see this from their calling, as well as from their conduct, and lastly from their confirmation. And first of all, from their calling. I want you to notice the third, the third chapter, the first verse. This is a true saying, if a man desire the office of a bishop, he desireth a good work. Now friend, we often read this text, and we imagine here for a moment that what the Apostle is saying is, he who desires the office has a good desire. But note what the Apostle says, really. He says here, he who desires the office of a bishop, he desireth a good work. He doesn't say that the desire is necessarily good, but the work, that is the office, is good. You see, friend, it requires us to remember the context just once more of this chapter. You remember what the Apostle was facing in Ephesus. He finds here, as you find here in 1 Timothy 1, in the third verse, he urges Timothy to charge some that they teach no other doctrine. Because there were those who were usurping this office, who were teaching in the Church of Christ who had no right to do so. There were those who desired the office and the work of the office, but had no right to do so. It was possible to desire the office, but for wrong reasons. And so, I mean, James' friend is even more emphatic. Note what he says there. He says, my, my brethren, be not many masters. The word there in the original is from which we get the word rabbi. That is, teachers or overseers. Knowing that we shall receive the greater condemnation. Again, that's James 3.1. There he expressly precludes men 
any kind of man from desiring the work. What is the apostle doing? Well, friend, he's not commending every kind of desire. He's commending the office itself. The point is that the apostle is making, and this flows from the verses that come, he's making the point that this is a high calling. In fact, when he says here that this is a good work, the word there in the original is this is an excellent work, an excelling work. And friend, if this is an excellent work, it requires the best of men. If these are not the best of men, they have no right to set their hand to the work. And this is why the list of qualifications comes comes later. His point is, is that only the best of men should be considered for the best of work. My friend, as we look at this text, we're supposed to understand here that the work demands godliness. It demands godliness. As we saw before in Hebrews 13, 17, these who are overseas in the church watch for the souls of Christ's people as they that must give account. They're called to be those who watch over God's heritage. And note this in 1 Peter 5, 3, being examples to the flock. You see, friend, what the Apostle is telling us here is that this is a good and excellent work and requires men who are godly, men who may be examples to the people of God. And, friend, as you see this, of course, you understand that their work immediately requires this. As we saw before, these are men who are going to God in prayer for the people of God. These are men who are going to issue counsel from the Word of God to Christ's flock. These are people who are going to be visiting, men who are going to be visiting the people of God in their homes. All of these things require men who are godly, men who are sincere. Their calling requires it. And friend, part of their calling is that their great desire is that they would be examples to the flock. That they would be faithful men, leading others to Christ. Their cry should be that of John. As he is in 3 John 4, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. These are men who see their work as holy as high. And so they have affections and capabilities to work in the office. You see, friend, as we look at this text, we can't miss that there were men who did hold this office not rightly, illegitimately in Ephesus. These were men who you could compare to men who were uniformed soldiers, but were untrained, unequipped for the work. And the Apostle says, if the church in Ephesus is to move forward, well, friend, those men must be removed. They're unfit for the field of battle. In fact, it's worse than that. They're wolves who would devour rather than save. As you look at this first verse, then, the eldership immediately requires men to be men who, who spurn ambition and pride. They must be men who themselves are looking at the office as a high thing, as a holy thing. It should not be ambition. It should not be for a name that they aspire to it. The work is higher than all of that. But secondly, friend, you see here also their conduct is to match the office. As you look at this text, you'll see that the Apostle in the second and third verses require these men to be men who demonstrate godliness. I want you to notice as we go through this text, uh, it may be strange to go through this so quickly, but 
The Apostle is making a very simple point as he draws all of these various particulars together. I mean, I want you to note just first of all, he is to be the husband of one wife. In the original, that is a one-woman man, if you will. Um, it's impossible for us really to build a, a view of divorce and remarriage here. It's, it's really just the idea that this man here is a man who is faithful to his wife. He's a faithful man. Now, friend, he's also a man. He's a man who is vigilant, as we have in our text. That is a man who is self-controlled. He's sober. We might say also they're careful. He's a man of good behavior. Now, that phrase in the original would perhaps be more like our word modest. He's not forward in bringing himself forward. He's the man, a man like the one that we sang of in Psalm 131. He does not think of himself highly. He's a man given to hospitality. That is, particularly in the original, a man who's given to entertaining strangers. He's also a man who is apt to teach. Now, friend, in 1 Timothy 5.17, you do have two offices in view that are both called presbyteros. There are those who teach and there are those who rule. And as you look at the context in Ephesus, it's important for us to note that the apostle is primarily dealing with those who had taken upon themselves the teaching office, those who are gospel ministers or pretending to be so. And so, friend, as we think about this, it's right for us. Our standards teach that this chapter is primarily has in view the teaching elder, though applications, of course, to the ruling elder are made. And we can say, even if we're thinking of this informally, the ruling elder does have, of course, a teaching aspect to his work as well. Basil puts it this way. The ruling elder teacheth as well as the pastor. Only the pastor doth it, more, doth it publicly to the whole congregation. The ruling elder doth it privately, as he findeth everyone to have need. And so, friend, though I believe this text, and with our forebears, argue that really the teaching office is in view in this text, it is right for us to think of the ruling elder as also teaching, uh, perhaps more informally, and it would be right for us to say that this passage would certainly allow for the ruling elder to teach in a formal capacity, but it would be wrong for us to say that every ruling elder must teach publicly. He may teach privately, but not necessarily publicly. Uh, Many men have been precluded from the office unrighteously uh, by holding to this view. But we also find here that this is a man who's not to be given to wine. In other words, he's not a drunkard. He's a man who's not a striker. That is, he's not a brute. He's not a brute. He's a man who's not greedy of filthy lucre. That is, he's not one who's given to ill employment. But he's patient. That is, not a brawler. The idea there is that he is amicable. He's peaceable. The sense there, friend, is that he's not one who insists on others' evils or sins. He's not a complainer. He's not one that will be quick to point out others' problems. He's peaceable, amicable. He's not covetous. He's not a lover of money. Now, friend, as I read this list to you, as you look at this text, what do you find? You find that this is a man who is to to exemplify a list that every Christian is called to. In short, he's to exemplify, of course, the fruit of the Spirit, which is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. That's the idea that the Apostle drives home. This man is to exemplify Christian piety. 
in every way that might be observable to the congregation. My friend, of course, the reason why this is, is because this man is called to be an overseer. As we said before, an example to the flock. He who would undertake this office must be one who is not rotten. You see, friend, if you're building a home and the beam is rotten and you make that the load-bearing beam, what happens to the house? Of course it collapses. The apostle is very clear. Such men must not hold office. If such men hold office, friend, we should expect the crisis in Loch Brickland just as the crisis was faced in Ephesus. No, the apostle says these men must exemplify true Christian godliness. And he really must be a truly spiritual man. He must be a man, not just a moral pagan. He must be a man who is truly committed in all of these things. Now, thirdly and finally, as we close, we come to the way in which this godliness is confirmed. And I said before that there are three contexts that the Apostle has in view. He takes us, first of all, to the man's home, to the man's maturity, and lastly, to the man's relationship to the world. And these three coax three other warnings. You see, friend, in the home, the Apostle urges that if there is chaos in the home, there will be chaos in the church. Likewise, if the man is immature, we should expect that this will bring a fall on himself. And finally, if there is disrepute in the world with regard to the man, we should expect that that too would fall on the church and on himself. But the point that you see here is that the Apostle is saying that these men who are to hold office must be demonstrably godly, and that their godliness must be demonstrably exercised. That is true. And so, friend, take first of all the marriage. This text is not saying that a man must be married, but it's saying that if the man is married, if he does have a family, if he does have children, they must be managed well. Now, why is that? Well, friend, I want you to note that for every man who's head of a home, this is an obligation. Take what the Lord says from his own word. To the man who says, Thou shalt teach them diligently unto thy children, that is the Lord's word, and shalt talk of them when thou sittest in thine house, and when thou walkest by the way, and when thou liest down, and when thou risest up. This is the Lord's account of a godly husband, of a godly father. And then for the husband, friend, note how the Christian home is supposed to be. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. Now note this. So ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loveth his wife loveth himself. And again, as I continue, For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother, and shall be joined unto his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let every one of you in particular so love his wife even as himself, and the wife see that she reverence her husband. Now, friend, I read to you from Ephesians 5 for a very particular reason. Why is it necessary that the ruling elder, that any elder, would have a home well ordered. Well, friend, if his home is not marked by godliness, it cannot exemplify the gospel. And that really is the point of Ephesians 5. The church in Ephesus is to hear that the homes that are there that are there in the church are to set forward examples to the world of Christ's love for the church, however creaturely it might be, and also the church's willing submission to Christ. 
A friend, if the elder's home is not functioning this way, how might he then be a true example to the flock of God? But take then that second context, his maturity. Note here, friend, he says here that he must not be a novice, that is a neophyte, one new to the faith, lest being lifted up with pride he fall into the condemnation of the devil. It's important for me to tell you this, friend, because obviously we're in First Timothy, and Timothy was a young man. Whatever the apostle means here is not that he must be advanced in years, but he must be advanced in maturity and godliness. He writes to Timothy, let no man despise thy youth. But then, friend, you have this description of Timothy that shows us why the apostle would urge that. He says here in Philippians 2, I have no man like-minded who will naturally care for your state. For all seek their own, not the things which are Christ Jesus. But ye know the proof of him, speaking of Timothy, that as a son with the father he hath served me in the gospel. Friend, Timothy might have been young, but he was advanced in godliness. And it's that which is required of the elder. He must be one who is mature in the faith. You see, friend, that's what's really required. And as you look at this text, you come to that third and that final point. You see here, he must be one who is in the world, received as one who has a good report. Friend, as you look throughout the history of the church, perhaps this last piece is the one that's most neglected. But it's the one that often, often, time and again, creates all kinds of problems in the church and its lack. Lack of concern. In the seventh verse, we're told here that he must have a good report. Why? Friend, if the overseer, if the overseer in the house of God is a man who is known by the world to be ungodly, as the apostle says of the Jews in Romans 2, the name of God, the name of God will be blasphemed among the Gentiles through them. Friend, it's so necessary that those who would hold office, says the Apostle, would be men who are seen by the world as godly, perhaps and certainly not loved if they are so, but men who are of good report nonetheless. This point, friend, is just this, that those who be elders are men who are tried and proven. Their faith is not merely a profession. Their faith is something that has been made demonstrable in all these various contexts. And you see, friend, as we close, the application for us is very simple. The apostle would have us see here that the eldership is an excellent, it's a beautiful calling, it's a good calling. But it's a calling for those men who are appointed, given by Christ. Men, then, who are of evident grace. These cannot be men who are simply good businessmen. These cannot be men who are simply charismatic. Men who are popular. These must be men whose piety has been tried, whose godliness is evident. And friend, that raises the question for those who are either in the eldership or aspire to be so. Friend, this text urges them away from ambition. This is a good and excellent office. It's a high calling, says the apostle. And friend, it should then only it should only be entertained with utmost humility.
Calvin puts it this way, that yes, even those who hold the office are tainted by pride as all men are. But friend, those who come to desire such an office, such a work, should be men who are acquainted with their own weakness. Men who know their need for sustaining grace. But also, friend, we can't miss either that this is an office that one should not despair of. If men are truly called, too often it's the case that men simply despair of the possibility of holding such an office, even though all the qualities in Scripture are there and providence seems to be indicating they're truly called. Well, friend, to despair of the office and not to rely upon Christ for sustaining grace is really the same sin of presumption, just in a different form. You see, friend, the Apostle is urging men in both cases only to cast themselves upon Christ to be such men. And for the congregation, friend, this text should really show us afresh the love of Christ. You remember that moment when Christ was at the seaside. You remember that moment whenever Peter was there and asked three times to confirm his love. The Lord there tells Peter that the love debt that he owes to Christ should be paid to his people. And that precisely is the idea behind 1 Timothy 3. Such men as are described from verses 2 down to verse 7 are good and are godly men. And here is what Christ would have them do. He would have them feed the flock of God. That is Christ's ongoing love for the church. He would have the best of men devote themselves to oversee the Lord's house for their good. That's Christ's continued care. It's not, friend, something that men who hold office are supposed to be exalted for. It's something that Christians, as we benefit from these things, are supposed to discern the hand of Christ. And lastly, friend, this text should only urge us to pray for such men. How we need such men. Men who are first God's men. Men who are men who are experienced in godliness. Men who are willing to give themselves to be sold and to settle for Christ. And of course, beloved, as we come to this text, and we come especially looking toward the end of this month, we as a congregation are to see here that we are only to vote for such men. These and these alone are the ones whom the Lord would have us look to. These and these alone are the ones whom we should prayerfully consider as we come to this time of election. I don't want to go on too much longer, but friend, I would say this to you as we close. Too often the eldership is seen, both teaching and ruling, as though it were simply one's maturation in the church. And that's not the biblical account. You see, friend, the biblical account is the men who are called here are men who are endowed by God for the calling, who are called by Christ, sent by the they ascended Christ to his church for the church's good. And these only are to be looked to. And so as we look as a congregation to making, as, as we look as a congregation to vote, friend, we need to be mindful that we ought to be doing so prayerfully. Praying that the Lord would guide us only to such men whom the Lord has qualified. Only to such men who are gifted and really duly called by Christ. 
to this high calling. And may the Lord guide us in that, for his own name's sake and for our good. Amen.